We finished last time with the healing of the leper, but I want to back up again to the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. We looked at it in Mark versus Luke, how Luke changed the sequence from Mark and, 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 and swapped the order and structure uh, for his own literary reasons. Well, Matthew does the same thing. Only he does a much more impressive job of it. If you take a look at this chart up here, this wonderful chart up here, we find on the, on the Mark listing the story of the calling of the first disciples, which includes the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, right here in chapter 1 uh, in verse 16 section. Uh, verse 29. Verse 29. You can trace that over into Matthew. But it doesn't come up here with the call of the first disciples in chapter 4. It comes in chapter 8. After the Sermon on the Mount. So he has moved its location far more than Luke did. Luke left it in the same chapter, the same area. Well, it's neat, and you can see it's all filled with blue between them, so it's stuff that doesn't even... Blue and white. Take. Blue is stuff that's unique to Matthew, and stuff that's from Q. And, not hmm. and it separates it out. If you take it out, it puts it a whole lot closer together. It's not as much of a separation, and that helps to illustrate that. So take a look for just a minute in Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. Now, he also puts it in a different, totally different place. He puts it in chapter 8... Following the healing of the centurion's servant. All right. Verse 14 of chapter 8. Then Jesus, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. And you know, you wonder, well, now what's the pronoun agreement there? That's not Jesus' mother-in-law. <laughs> Which you, which you know, some people might want to say. It's, it's Peter's mother-in-law. He saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Chapter 8, verse 14. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she got up and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were possessed with demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and cured all who were sick. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. Now that's fascinating. Matthew yet again Quoting from the Hebrew Bible, in this case from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Quoting from Isaiah, giving the reason, the fulfillment of prophecy, the interpretation of what's going on here. This act of healing and of casting out demons is used, is, is used to substantiate this citation then from Isaiah he took our infirmity and bore our diseases. But what he's done is he's take this taken this story and put it here. Frankly, a long way away from the, from the call of Peter, Andrew, James, and John as it's found in Mark. 
yet more illustration. If Luke wasn't strong enough to illustrate the freedom these people felt to adjust some of the sequential ordering where it's not that important, they, they felt free to change the sequential order. It is the same healing story. It's far abbreviated, but it's there. And it's placed upon the context of after doing that, he then healed others, which is also part of the original story in Mark and as Luke adopted it. I just thought that was an interesting point, that this comes that much later in the gospel. But when you compare it to that chart, you see, if you take out all the blue and white stuff there in the middle and switch it back together with the mark that's before, it's not that far removed. Interesting illustration. Questions before we move into our principal material for the evening? Well, refresh my memory. The um, NIV has got Matthew, and you know, they give these lovely little titles with all the red reviews. Uh, and the way they did it, it looked like he did so sequentially. I was wondering where the rest of them, whether the other two were Gospels. He talks about the man with leprosy, the faith of the centurion, and his healing his mm -hmm. guy. <laughs> yes. And then Jesus heals many, which mm -hmm. is what we just got to. Sure. So that's almost sequential. I mean, that's yes. it's you know it's getting more and more powerful. You had to have faith, even a centurion. <laughs> Those people. We got the leper here. That was pretty big. Lepers, lepers are pretty bad. They're outcasts. I mean, you don't really have anything to do with them. And then if that isn't outcast enough, let's try a Gentile centurion. Oh, please. Roman guard. Yeah. Occupying force. Whoa. Wow. And then you heal the many finally. Well, then it's funny because then he goes to Peter's mother-in-law. Yeah, kind of oh, wondering yeah, what was <laughs> was so there something about perfect. Peter's mother-in-law that we don't oh, know about? <laughs> I get it now. Never mind. <laughs> no, I don't think that's the case. That's that's the one element of that sequential increase that is not necessarily there. But the mini, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. Now, did the other ones do that too? No, not like that. We read through them. They don't have the centurion. Isn't there? Not at all. Yeah. It must have been something unique then that Matthew felt to, or the author of Matthew, to put all the, of that section of chapter 5, 6, and 7 clumped together. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, and the, there. the teaching material from the Sermon on the Mount and everything else that kind of comes before and after it. He clumps it together. It's a pow it, it, As a piece of literature, it's not nearly as crafty as Luke. Not, and then by that, I, I mean that in a positive sense. Luke is far more ingenious in how he integrates and interweaves the material. He's a better writer, without question. Certainly than Mark, and absolutely better than Matthew as well. But Matthew's is actually more effective. Most people, when they remember the Beatitudes, the teachings of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, they remember it from Matthew. They don't remember Luke's version as well. All right. Let's go to chapter 2 of Mark. Chapter 2 of Mark. Here we have one of the big, one of the most important, one of the most interesting healing stories uh, that we're, that we're going to look at, really throughout the Gospels. It's really one of the more interesting ones 
for what it is not, actually. So let's just begin. Beginning at Mark chapter 2, verse 1. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now remember, we just finished what from chapter 1? The leper. The calling of the disciples. We just finished out chapter 1. Yeah. And what was the last story we read in chapter 1? The leper. Uh-huh. So here we're going on with the next story. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Whoa. Uh-oh. <laughs> so many gathered around that there was no longer room for them. Not even in the front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the man, the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. All right, that's the story of the healing of the paralytic in Mark. Now, we're going to compare this with Luke and with Matthew in just a minute, but, but first I want to ask a theological question here. I will answer. And why are you smiling, Judy? <laughs> <laughs> no problem. How is this different from the other healing stories? Well, there was a lot of questioning as to how he had the authority to do it or what words he used to do it. Mm -hmm. There was some questioning going on. You are so hot, you're on fire here. It's the first time he said, thy sins are forgiven. He went beyond healing. That's right. And he's spiritual. But he switched it around. Well, he, he did that first, yeah. Yeah. He's, he said enough and for then, healing, but then he had to teach. And the healing was to show that he had that authority. He had to teach while he was healing. Yeah. Multitasker. Is this a healing story? Yes, it is. more ways than one. <laughs> it's both. It's, it's yeah, it's multitasking. It's a revelation. It's a healing story, but it's a revelation as well. 
Now, I'm going to present to you the following conclusion ahead of the fact. And as we read through this repeatedly in the other two Gospels, we'll consider the thought. But I just want to present it to you. This is not a healing story. Now, it contains a healing. But unlike most of the healing stories, Jesus doesn't actually heal him. He forgives him. So let's take a look at it again with that in mind, specifically. Son, verse 5, son, your sins are forgiven. The guy's paralyzed. He can't come to Jesus. He can't get himself to Jesus. He can't walk to Jesus. He has to have four of his friends carry him on a mat to Jesus. And they have to dig through the roof to let him down through the thatch roof of the house into the room where Jesus is because they can't get through the crowd. So this guy is absolutely paralyzed. Don't misunderstand me. But is Jesus concerned about the paralysis or something else? What does Jesus do? Does he touch him like he touched the leper? Does he make little mud things and put him on it? No. He says your sins are forgiven, which means something else is going on here. Something else is going on here that is far more fundamental than just a healing story. Healing is the byproduct here. It's not the focus. It's not the focus. So while it's called a healing, and it is, that, it is a healing, it's more importantly a forgiveness story, a revelation story of who Jesus is. And what Jesus can truly do that is even far more important than healing people. I mean, healers were a dime a dozen. But forgivers, they were, to do it was blasphemy. Take a look. Verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. <coughs> Who can forgive sins? But God alone. Here he was forgiving sin. Your sins are forgiven. The guy needs healing. I mean, you know, he comes in. He definitely needs healing. He's a paralytic. And Jesus is forgiving sin? Notice Jesus' perception. This is fascinating. This isn't Matthew. This isn't Luke. This isn't John. This is Mark. Supposedly primitive, undeveloped, theologically uh, unsophisticated Mark. The closest to the human Jesus, Mark. The closest to the source, Peter, of these stories. And it says, at once, verse 8, at once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? It's like Jesus the mind reader. Earlier we had Jesus the fish magnet. Now we've got Jesus the mind reader. He's perceived in his spirit that they are questioning, that they are accusing. 
Not only does he have a perception that there's something wrong with this man that's beyond the physical that needs to be dealt with, but there's something wrong with these scribes that needs to be addressed. But forgive the skepticism. I mean, that doesn't sound real perceptive. Like, uh, would be what? needed. Would be needed. You're sitting there. You make a statement. You know. It doesn't the say. It doesn't say that they said this out loud. They're just sitting there. That they're talking to one another. Now and some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Yeah. And the good. following, which is in quotes, isn't spoken. It's thought. It doesn't say they said. It's no, in they their don't have hearts. To say. Body language. If I'm sitting here with Karen and you say something, that's like, quite perceptive, though, especially in a crowd of people like this. Yeah, but you've got well, these. Gr- I thought Notice, these guys had special clothes on. Well, they no. often wore a kind of uniform, yes, uh-huh. but still, they, they usually wore it in the synagogue. They're in they're in Peter's house at Capernaum. Yeah, but they had to rush over there to <laughs> get to the house of the homeroom. <laughs> It's it all over Nevertheless, it's very perceptive. Yeah, it is. Jesus is perceptive about the need of the paralytic, and Jesus is perceptive about these guys. Essentially, reading their hearts here, it says, At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that these were discussing these questions among themselves. Now, there's your point. You know, maybe this has been something that's been circulating around already. And here they are sitting in his midst, running through these thoughts in his mind. Not that they're sitting anymore. So but if they were doing that, he sure as heck would have. Yeah. This responded. translation says within themselves. Within themselves, mm-hmm. in their hearts, within mm-hmm. themselves. Oh, it says discussing these questions within themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could be. It could be within their circle. Yeah. Well, it, it within their group. Literally, it, it literally it reads among themselves. Yeah. That's the more literal that, reading. See, that makes sense. Well, see that, would lead, that would lead you to believe that it was a whispered conversation. Could yeah. be. That yeah, would lead Pharisees, you that way. We're, we're pretty sure these are Pharisees. These, right? are, these are scribes. They're, Pharisees. And they're talked about scribes and Pharisees, scribes of the Pharisees okay. elsewhere. Well, it's clear they weren't addressing Jesus. No, they're not talking to Jesus. And, it's, and there's no evidence that they were near him or far from him. I mean, they've been back over on the edge yeah. of the room. And presumably he was, his attention was... On the paralytic, paralytic. Notice what Jesus says. Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which in their time frame and in their cultural setting is like saying, why are you thinking about that? Mm-hmm. Because that was the seat of the intellect. The cardia was the seat of the intellect. Well, he's calling them out. They can't deny it. Yeah. They can't say what he's saying. Oh, he's what absolutely calling them out. He's calling them out. But he didn't say, why did you speak that or why right. did you say that? Why exactly. are you he's raising himself. such questions they have in your no hearts? Place to go. They're now, notice his next question. This is in direct connection with what the nature of the story is. Which is easier to say? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, stand up, take your mat, and walk. Now, assume you have magical powers. Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say take your mat and walk? Well, he's saying, I think he wants us to think take your mat and walk. That is the easier thing to do. I don't know about that. <laughs> sure it is. If you, have, if, you have the, if you have the ability to, to, to heal, isn't that going to be easier? Exactly. 
precisely on target, which is part of what Karen was identifying in the connection with the revelation. Yes, but it's a revelation to forgive sins, but that to forgive sins is far more difficult, if not impossible, than to heal. Did the Jews have a concept of forgiveness of sins? Yes, and it was entirely related sacrifice. to what God did in the temple. Sacrifice and with the, the sacrificial system. Okay, let me ask you this then. What how is this different? How how does this not? Here we go. I see the sacrificial system, and that's how I already thought that one out. But how does this not back up the when when? So here's a paralytic, and you're God, some God, and you have the authority to forgive him mm -hmm. for his sins, and then tell him to get up and walk. And the, it looks like it's pretty closely connected to forgiving his sins, and he walks. And I know you say that's not the point, but the, that looks like to the, me the that walking these, is the byproduct. Right, but these, of the forgiveness. How are these people going to understand this in that day that that wasn't connected with forgiveness of the sins? He's expecting them to catch okay. that. Then how does that not, this is what I want you to help me with, how does that not, <laughs> it wasn't a primrose path, I, was, I just said, you know, we're reversing the question. How does it not back up the Jewish concept of, Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, and you were a sinner. And it that's is why you're rooted in that Deuteronomic theology. Thank you. You're asking the question about Deuteronomic yes, theology. Absolutely. It is rooted to a degree in that conception if you misunderstand what's going on here. And how are they expected to understand if they've never had anybody explain it to them? Like, it's a that's revelation. What, that's, what, that's what Jesus is doing. <laughs> that's what Jesus is well, doing. See, that that certainly explains it. It bothers me because I, I see where people can bludgeon you yeah. if you have an illness. This has been misused. Right. This passage has been misused and abused repeatedly to beat on people, as you say, to bludgeon them with regards to their illnesses mm -hmm. and their sins. Mm -hmm. When in fact it's a calling to forgive, not bludgeon. Forgive. Now. But it was culturally correct that he was sick because he must have sinned. Or there must the have been presumption sin with, with the presumption within Deuteronomic That's theology, the theology of Deuteronomy, which we also see functioning in Job, is that there must have been some sin going on to precipitate the illness. Yeah. Some sin was going on. Something evil was present. Hence, many of these, uh, these um, demonic exorcisms are actually articulated in this quasi-healing format. Here we have something very similar. That's why I'm saying it's more of a forgiveness story that has healing as a byproduct than just a straight healing story. Don't you read this as he, his question was, when, when he read that question, or asked the question, which is easier, mm -hmm. to say your sins are forgiven or you're healed, my, my gut is, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, not that you're healed, because nobody can, can verify prove it. Which that, it's easier to say, say, not do. It's easier to say, because then he said, so you know I have the authority. I'm going to do the healing, which is therefore harder because it's more visible to show that I have the authority to do this the well, heat, the forgiveness of the, the sins as the well. The healing is a visible event. The forgiveness is not, theoretically. theoretically. It's harder. But within their cultural setting, the hardest thing is to forgive. But he was saying just to say it, as to speak it. Right. 
because he then follows it up, which is show you that I have the authority Verse to do that. Verse 10. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't wonder too much why they thought that might be a tad bit blasphemous. There you go. Not the temple. You can, you know, we can't go to the temple. And it's not. It's sacrifice. not the sacrifice at right. the altar. Right. It's not the taking the blood and taking it in and sprinkling it on the the horns of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. It's it's none of that. It's the Son of Man with the authority to do it. <laughs> I mean, pick your chin up off the floor, gentlemen. Yeah, you're shocked. Yes, you think it's blasphemy because it is by their rules. Healing isn't. Healing's simple by comparison. Forgiving of sins? It's not simple for us. Who said anything about us? I said by comparison <laughs> with forgiveness. I know. Do, do we have the authority Wait, to forgive Do we have the authority to forgive sins? No. no. Of our own self, no. Only through Christ. That's the whole point of the entire story. Is that for him, just like for him, changing rocks into bread is a simple matter. He could have done it. But he'd rather subsist on the word of God and not on rocks transformed into bread. Likewise, healing the man is no big deal. That's nothing. That's easy. It's forgiving that's hard. If we're having, for, for the culture to accept, for the religious right. culture of the Jews to accept, it's the forgiving that's hard. Now, for us, we think, oh, that's no big deal. <laughs> We've well, come it's easy so to far. Say it, but it's not easy to do easy it. To accomplish it. Actually, follow up on and actually, actually live out the forgiveness. Mm -hmm. That's the tough part, actually, for us. Not for Jesus. And it's not open to say. Now look at no, no, well, now look at what he says next. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. There we go again. Another piece of little of precision here on earth. That assumes that there is a that the Son of Man has some connection with other than earth, which is the first place in Mark that he's actually himself making this kind of a statement. Wow. And he refers to himself as the son of man, too. We'll talk about that later. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, take up your mat and go your, to your home. Unquote. End of statement. Question. Does he ever say you are healed? He gives him an order, which assumes there's been a healing. But he doesn't ever say, you are healed. He doesn't say, I do so choose, be healed of your disease, like he did with the leper. Your faith has made you well, as he says with the woman with the hemorrhaging. None of that. He just simply tells him, gives him an order. Tells him to do something. Go home. Well, isn't that showing he has faith that he healed him? Jesus has faith that he healed him, and he's expecting faith from the paralytic to get up and do it. Not quite finished. I say to you, take up your mat, stand up, take up your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never 
never seen anything like this. Reminds me of Dr. Doolittle and the Push Me Pull You song. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Now, they've just seen the healing of a leper. They've just seen the healing of Peter's mom-in-law. They've seen the deliverance of people with demons and the healing of others from many diseases in the preceding chapter. How is this different? The forgive thing again. It's the forgiveness that's part of this. Well, that through a... forgiving, Jesus here heals. Jesus here is healing the man by forgiving. And then he proves it, though, to those Pharisees by what, you know, what Lisa was saying. He, right in your face. He says, yes, look, this there. proves to you that I have the authority to do what I just did that you mm -hmm. said was blasphemous. You said it was blasphemy? Here, I'll prove it to you that it wasn't blasphemy. Get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walk, which means that his forgiving of the sin was what the man needed. Sometimes this is not to diminish in any way, shape, or form the miraculous nature of this healing. But sometimes our sins paralyze us. Now in the first session, we talked extensively about psychosomatic illness. And it has a place here. It could very well be that the paralytic was a paralytic because of psychosomatic illness with regards to guilt and sin. It's possible. It doesn't say that. But it does say that by forgiving him, the man's paralysis was wiped away. He was healed through the forgiveness. And the getting up and walking is the demonstration of the reality thereof. That doesn't also lead you to believe, too, that he could, since he made it two separate events, and he made the second of which is the healing, because to prove a point, he could have been forgiven and still not been healed. Absolutely. So the, the forgiveness the walking, in and of itself didn't... It took faith. The, walking, took the faith. walking demonstrates to others the reality of the forgiveness. The forgiveness can be, could be, may well have been true, and in Jesus' case absolutely is true, despite him getting up and walking. But... Nevertheless, it is still the fact that in the accounting of the story, Jesus never actually does anything specifically to heal the man other than giving him an order to get up. And that really isn't the same as I do so choose to be healed. It's the forgiveness that, gener that, that generates the need to, to prove the veracity of, of Jesus' authority to say it. And therefore, it, the healing becomes not only the byproduct of the forgiveness, but actually the external proof to the questioners that Jesus has the authority to do it this way. Are there any other places in the Bible period where Jesus himself basically is saying, I'm going to prove this to you, and this is it. This is how I'm going to... A physical act, I'm going to prove it to you. Yeah, it's die and be raised. I'm saying at the time. <laughs> yeah. During the ministry period. 
Uh, Before he was raised? <laughs> let's reserve that okay, because the answer is yes. Oh, okay. But I would rather come across this. Sure. Can I ask one more question about the healing? Of course. You mentioned <clears throat> before we started that there were healers, people were healing all over the place. Mm -hmm. Where did they get the power to do those healings? Where did the Jewish uh, exorcists get the power to exorcise demons? Some of this probably goes back to that psychosomatic healing. In some cases, it, yes. In some cases, it may well be that it stems from the same God, the power of the Holy Spirit, as, just as the Holy Spirit empowered prophets, empowered John the Baptist. There's no reason to say that, that, that other holy men weren't also empowered to do that. Some may well have been charlatans. Some not. Um, Could also, but in that day and age, that was one of the things that you did if you were a holy man. You healed people. So did John. And there are other people that we know about from the from the Jewish literature, which are known of as healers. Now, could there be any satanic healers? Any power given by through Satan to heal as sure. well? Sure, I would assume so. Although it would be for some nefarious purpose, not right. for a positive one. I don't want Satan to heal me. <laughs> no, no, I, would, I, would I know, but that, he has the ability to. He has supernatural powers, so he would have the ability to do it. But would he? Well, you look at, you know. Well, the, in the context of those types of, of temptations that Jesus faced, yeah, sure, he would if the objective was to get the soul of the person he was healing. Could very well be the case. So, do you believe? that a lot of these people you see on TV and all have the power to heal, truly? Oh, I'm sure some of them. I think the Holy Spirit certainly does act to heal. I can't, I would never presume to know whether or not, you know, what you're seeing is true. Yeah. Like him or not, I would think that God would not want to make such a mockery of it in my understanding, so I kind of feel bad about that. But I certainly so think many of them make a mockery of it. They do, and all it takes is one to... To run it for everybody. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you something. Susan, you remember my dad. My dad had the true gift of healing. The healing presence of God. He could pray for you. He'd lay his hands on you. He'd pray for you. And there would be a true sense of healing and wholeness with God and even physical healings. There's several of them that I can point to in my ministry where dad would pray for someone and there would be a literal healing. A literal healing. Uh, one, one example of that that I could think of was a lady named Blanche Ham at Seagoville who was extremely ill. Dad prayed for her and almost immediately she got better. And it was more, yes, there was the physical healing, but there was also a very powerful spiritual component to it as well. And Dad never claimed any, any laud or honor. He was always very quiet and low. My dad was one of the most lowest key people you ever, y'all met my dad, one of the most lowest key people you'd ever meet in that regard. But it was there and it was genuine. And it was definitely the power of the Holy Spirit. I have no question about that. None. 
And I know of some others for whom that is true. One, one great, totally off topic, but well, it's actually related to healing. Yeah. One total perfect example of someone who was really on the edge of, of, of what I would consider appropriate usage of this was a person by the name of Catherine Kuhlman who back in the 1960s and 70s was a very famous Pentecostal healer. And she would have these healing crusades and there is no question that she was, was present and prayed for people and they were healed. Not everybody was healed, but lots of people were. And, and it, but she was, a little, she was a little weird. She wore these strange white flowing robes. Doc used to talk about yeah, that's why. So and yeah. and she would wave her hand, and the audience would just kind of go over like dominoes. <laughs> and, and she was really sort of in, impressive in that sense. But she was also extremely weird. Very fascinating person. Mother, mother went to one of the, uh, and dad also went, went to one of her healing conventions. And it was a very powerful experience for them. That's on the edge. I mean, she really was milking it for attention. But still, God honored and used her. And many people were healed as a result. Do we think that other healer, the one I knew we were going to mention, Oral something rather? Oral Roberts? <laughs> I'm, I, I have no question that God would use even people who are in it for themselves for the good of God's people. To be really, really, really careful about passing judgments. Well, some of them he actually healed, is what he's saying. I believe that there are some. Some of these are actual healings. I don't know if it was Doctor Scott. Maybe it was through him that I he, he was talking about one time. But he, he he mentioned that you know when you've got a group of people like that mm-hmm. that are there seeking truly for a miraculous happening, that there's a spiritual sense that just brings out the Holy Spirit when exactly. two or more are gathered and there's just such focus of attention and worship that it just it can it can be brought on regardless of who the person is up there doing that right that the spirit comes and moves and does what the spirit just naturally does just because the people are collected there now this stems off of what we just talked about and what we just read in mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 in greek the word for healing for forgiveness are the same word. Sotsa. Say it again. Sotsa. It's the same basic word. To be made whole. To be forgiven. To be made whole. We get the word soteriology from it. At the very beginning, sotsa. It means to heal and it means to forgive. Healing and forgiveness are two sides of the same thing. Being made whole, being made one. One of my favorite acronyms, and it's not, it's not real, but it does work. Atonement, being made, being made at one again. Atonement, at one-ment with God is also healing. Because healing is being made whole in its true reality, and that's what happens here. This man is made whole when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then it is proven when he gets up and walks that he is whole. 
And when he just heals the others, it doesn't say your sins are forgiven. Are their sins forgiven? I don't know. Good question. Their issue, the, the, parent, the leper's issue was not necessarily sins. He had other issues. This man was paralyzed. You know, I have no trouble believing that the man had an actual, some kind of a multiple sclerosis type paralysis. I don't know. Maybe he did. But what was really his problem was sin. Maybe not the source of the illness, although I think there's a connection there. But nevertheless, his problem was sin. And Jesus dealt with the problem. And then to prove that he could deal with the problem to the questioners and to see people who were saying he just, you know, were, 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 he was blasphemous, he said, get up and walk. He ordered it. Let's take a look at how Luke deals with this. Are you going to go back and talk about the verse 10 so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on yeah. earth? Okay. Yeah, we'll hit that again. Just a We'll hit that again. We'll hit a lot of things again that I've skipped over in this. Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. One day, while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting nearby. They had come from every village of Galilee and Judea. And from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was, on, was with him to heal. Just then, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher. They were trying to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd... They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, Who is this who is speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their questionings, he answered them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Stand up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the one who was paralyzed, I say to you, Stand up and take your bed and go to your home. Immediately he stood up before him, took what he had been lying on, and went to his home glorifying God. Amazement seized all of them, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen strange things today. This is a fabulous example, firstly of how Luke takes Mark and polishes him up. Fixes grammar problems, makes it read better, smoother, cleaner, clearer, more interesting, less choppy, less jumbled. Mark is a little halting at times and a little uncomfortable, principally because he's writing down what he has heard from Peter 
possibly some of it translating himself, some of it Peter's already translated as he's been preaching it, and he's therefore his writing is much less fluid. Luke has polished it up beautifully, but it's almost identical in terms of content, but grammar and word, sometimes word choice, but usually it's just grammatical construction and word order have been adjusted to make it be a better piece of literature. That's the first thing to note. This is a fabulous example of where Luke will take a piece of Mark, make very few substantive changes, and nevertheless improve it tremendously as a piece of literature. It's also an interesting case where, Mark, where Luke takes a piece of Mark and applies it into a cultural setting, making changes so that cultural setting understands it better. For instance, compare Luke's verse 19 with Mark's verse 4. In Mark, they, uh, they removed the roof above him and after having dug through it, mm -hmm. they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. And in Luke, finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. So Mark retains the Palestinian Judaic housing structure of a thatched roof that you would dig through. Luke translates that into the Gentile cultural setting where you don't have a thatched roof. You have slate tiles, shingles that you move apart. How convenient. And let him down through. Sure. Interesting, isn't it? Something as little as that it, it, it's a fascinating little adjustment that Luke did. Does it change the meaning of the story? Not one little bit. But it does place the cultural setting. It does allows you to see how, how Luke's brilliance as a writer just kind of comes through with a little change like that, with a tiny little change like that. All right. Um, taking a look at how Luke addresses it, what other changes, some of them may be more substantive, do you see? Well, I think he's definitely talking. He's definitely saying these guys were talking the Pharisees oh, yeah. and teachers. Luke makes it Not although although it retains Jesus's question. Yeah. Notice that why do you raise such questions in your heart? Question. Uh, uh, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Oh, well, what do you know? It's identical. <laughs> what Jesus said. Luke hasn't monkeyed with there. Interesting. That's very interesting. But what they're doing, he does allow a little bit of, of adjustment. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, and there it seems to be out loud, who is this who is speaking blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? That, that phrasing, that quote, is a good example of how Luke polishes up Mark's grammar. Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sin, but sins but God alone? Three simple sentences. Luke 
polishes them in his iteration of it. All right, now, his response to them, why do you raise such, uh, such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, stand up and walk? So the point is the same. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Does your translation do the same thing that mine does here? There's a great big dash. Mm -hmm. Dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. Or a dash. No dash. He no said dash. to the one who was paralyzed. How does yours do that? Yeah, multiple ours translations. Is, ours is in, well, one of them is in a parentheses. In parentheses. It's a parenthetical aside. This is sotto voce. This is, you know, very interesting. As the reader, it's what I did when I read it. Man, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Or he said to the, in this case, the he said the one who was paralyzed. <laughs> yeah. Slightly better wording here than in Mark. Mm -hmm. I say to you, take up your bed and go to your home. So, interesting. Even with the adjustments that Luke has made for Mark, he retains this aside. Which is uh, characteristic, not of something that's spoken, but of something that's written. Of literature. This, this kind of a sign. And in Greek, it's done grammatically. So you know it's sotto voce. So that you know that this is an aside to, to the reader. All right. Mm. That was like a dramatic pause. No, it's, but he's saying this, yeah. he, it, this is said to the reader. So that the reader knows to whom this is going. Yeah. He's shifted his focus from the scribes and the Pharisees now to the paralyzed man. Come down to the bottom, same kind of response to the healing, to the forgiveness. They are amazed at it. And notice what they say. Mark, we have never seen anything like this. Luke, knowing they have seen things like this, says, we have seen strange things today. This one says remarkable. But remarkable things. Remarkable. I find it interesting that even though Luke has polished things, shortened a few pieces, lengthened a few pieces, in my printout of the parallel, they're exactly the same length. That's how well he did his editorial work. That's how well he did it. Now taking a look at what he said, and we could wait till reading in Matthew, but I want to focus on something else in Matthew. Looking here at verse 24, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Any other question? Yeah, it just seems like it should be significant. <laughs> <laughs> it is I the very to explain it, it is the very focus of the revelation about Jesus, that this Jesus has something that no one else in his culture or society at this point has the authority to forgive in speaking for God. And he has that authority on earth. And it's the very core of the whole story. That authority, which is claimed in Mark, 
reiterated in Luke and will be reiterated in Matthew. It's not something that was glommed on later. It's something that is present in their earliest account in Mark of this healing, of this event, of this forgiving. And it is the first time this comes up in Jesus' ministry. But what about him referring to himself as the Son of Man? The Son of Man. What is the Son of Man? It's interesting utilization there. Let's see something. What does he use here? It's capitalized here. The Son. Yeah, Son of Man. It's a title. What does it mean? Doesn't sound really important, does it? There are places. Yeah, see, mine says Messiah in the TLB. The TLB says Messiah. Mm -hmm. And the NIV says Literally, son of man is the term, is the title that is used here. What is a son of man? What is the son of man? What, is it, what does it sound like? Well, there's, there can be the, uh, well, yeah. It can be the literal, the son of a man. Mm -hmm. Or it could have another meaning. It could be human in flesh, and things like that. So that you know that human beings have. Right. It could have that meaning. I mean, that, that would be a more literal understanding of Son of Man. See, I think of all of us. No, see, I'm confusing Son of God with Son of Man here. We're, no, all son, we're all children of God, but when it's used with Jesus, it's like he has a special place. Well, know? absolutely, because he is God. <laughs> but, I mean, Son of Man is a Jewish term. It's a Jewish technical term that in... Messianic literature, and that's what this is, and in Jewish literature, which anticipates the coming of the Messiah, is the formal title used for him, which is fascinating. It's used by Mark, it's used here by Luke, and it's used here by Matthew. All three of them use it. So if we were to go to the Old Testament, and they would talk about messianic passages we would see the son of man that's more son of man terminology is more post old testament jewish apocalyptic literature from the intertestamental period development it is an understanding of the nature of this particular person the son of man it, it's found a, a lot amongst the essene writings in the dead sea scrolls the son of man is 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 a semi divine character the messiah the anointed one of God, which is what Messiah means, means the anointed one. Literally means uh, plastered. <laughs> the one who's anointed or, or covered completely over. Um, he, his special position and role and is to come and establish the kingdom of God in all that the Messiah is supposed to do. Both the military Messiah overthrow the occupation forces of Rome the, the, the political messiah established the kingdom of David and the religious messiah to establish the right worship of God and the proper utilization of the temple, all of which had been perverted and destroyed by the occupation of first the Greeks and then the Romans and the collusion between the Jewish leadership and the Roman occupation, which is one of the things that the Essenes decried. And the reason why the people were expecting a Messiah so strongly at the time that Jesus did come was because of these perversions and these problems. And the Son of Man was the title that was used of him. Now, if these Gospels 
um, were being created out of whole cloth to try to communicate the story about Jesus to Gentiles, and it's totally removed from a Jewish cultural setting, why didn't they say Son of God there? Make more well, sense. Yeah, one answer would be they're trying to be honest reporters. <laughs> That's right. And trying to quote there. Mark is quoting Peter's utilization. Peter would be steeped in this messianic expectation and terminology. Luke, being a good historian or a good good dealer with the material that he has, is willing to utilize the term, even though it, even. He's, he's willing to change thatched roof into shingled roof, but he's going to utilize the same term, son of man, when to a Gentile reader that isn't going to sound like anything special. But it's what he's gotten from his source, and he's an honest reporter in that sense. What about those religious leaders that heard him say that so that you know the son of man... We don't see Jesus say that. Yeah, because Jesus said that, so that you know the Son of Man has the power to forgive. Yeah, so we you know the see, Messiah. Right, we don't see any reaction. No. What? Um, Actually, we do. Here. We do. It's, to the, that phraseology. It's to the whole thing. No, from from them though. From the from the Pharisees yeah. and the scribes. Like they did. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were. All amazed and glorified God. Right. You can't separate that and say that's just a response to his walking. And you can't say, well, that's all but the Pharisees. But they don't accuse him of blasphemy. They no. What They're amazed. They're shocked. They've never seen anything like it. They've seen amazing things today. <gasps> kind of attitude. Like, oh, crapola. We've now been shown to be jerks. Let's get out of here. Kind of attitude. We're wrong. They're amazed. They're stunned. One possible translation of the phrasing here, particularly from Luke, is they were terrified. That would make sense. If you read it in Luke, where it says they were filled awe. with awe. awe it says filled with fear. Filled with fear. It's one of those few places where the Greek wording allows for the intent of terror. So while in Mark it's wonderment more than anything else, in Luke there is an there is a an under an undercurrent that while it is glorifying God and it is amazing event and they were seized by this wonderment of it and filled with awe, there's also in that filled with awe phrase something of oops. We accused him of blasphemy and he proved us wrong. Because they're part of the all too. Not just the folk who are hanging around. Not just the four guys who brought him in. The guys who questioned Jesus and said, huh, you're blasphemy. You're engaging in blasphemy here by forgiving. But it looks worse than that because here, here you're reporting that this guy is using the term for the Messiah. Uh-huh. I, I am the one, the and one that you're expecting. And you don't have to go to the temple anymore to be forgiven because I have the authority to forgive you. So those guys over there are basically, that's not a big, huge bridge. Well, the Pharisees themselves were not, they didn't, while they would all, while they would go to the temple and engage in the system, if this were a bunch of Sadducees, I mean, you, you 
Dick in war. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but no, this is not a bunch of Sadducees. These this, are Pharisees. This is the educated. The scribes. The lawyers. Of the, the, and while this hit them, it didn't hit them quite like it would have hit a bunch of Sadducees. Okay. Because they didn't come back and follow up with, so you're saying you're they're the Messiah? Sl- they're slinking out. <laughs> they have nothing to say. He's, he's proven it. They've been proven wrong, and they're trying to be not noticed. Like, <laughs> let's get out of these chairs or whatever, which, of course, they're stone benches, so they can't. Yes. Uh, but um, let's Was third person used a lot in... Jesus often... I mean, most... What I remember, he, he refers to himself in third person. So that you may know that the Son of Man... So it would be like me saying, so that so that you will know that the pastor has the authority to. (laughs) You could do it that way. I mean, that does seem a little weird unless you listen to the Pope talk, and (laughs) that's what you get from the Pope all the time. Or the the Queen. We are not amused. (laughs) This is Jesus. This is Jesus. Well, it would be the. In in the Old Testament. Try to ease into this with the people. Not necessarily. It's this phrasing. He at the same time declares himself the son of man and at the same time does step himself away just slightly. And this follows not long after he tells he tells the um, the leper not to tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. That's interesting, yeah. But I was just reading back a little bit in Luke. Mm-hmm. Verse 16 through 21 is when he's in the temple and he's quoting Isaiah. Mm-hmm. He stops mid-sentence. And I mean in the synagogue? Yes. Mm-hmm. Sorry, in the synagogue. Mm-hmm. He's quoted Isaiah. And basically saying, today this day is fulfilled. That's me. Basically saying, it's here. I'm fulfilling this. Yeah. That's me. Which is pretty bold. I mean, not quite <laughs> as bold as this. but It's quite bold. I mean, both the, are bold. It, yeah. If I remember correctly, that's where they tried to kill him then. Isn't that in Nazareth? When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind. We did this several weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And to let the oppressed go free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what Isaiah 63. 61. 61. Yeah, 61. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's citing here his calling. And this is massive, friends. This is a massive calling. Then he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and sat down. In, in churches today, we stand up to preach. Back then, like the Pope today, you sit down to preach. <laughs> he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Like, what is he going to say about that? Then he, and this is his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, by the way. This, isn't, this is not Capernaum. This is his hometown. They know who he is here. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow! This moment, <laughs> this very instant... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. 
Remember, he's just he's come across from the wilderness. He went to Capernaum. He did some healings there, and then he came on up to Nazareth. And he's done this here. They're getting ready to throw him out of Nazareth. Yeah. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there uh, were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except the widow at Zarephath in Sidon, which is Phoenician territory. No. Yeah. Oops. Gentile territory. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Mm -hmm. Ooh. Interesting. Luke's a Syrian. <laughs> when they heard this, all the synagogue were filled with rage. I mean, you're not supposed to be giving this good news, this message, to the dogs of Gentiles. No, this is supposed to go to us, good Jews. They're pissed off. <laughs> They got up, drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Kind of bit. Jesus kind of walks on through them and out of there, and they, don't, they can't throw him off the cliff. By the way, Nazareth is sitting up on top of a nice little low hill there, and it would have been a nice little fall. Had they thrown him off from up there? But as he already said, there'd be thousands of angels down there ready to <laughs> his fall. Well, that was what Satan said. Yeah, Satan said that. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I'm sure that would have been different the pinnacle. They <laughs> brought him to that pinnacle, and different he pinnacle. wasn't there That anymore. is the earlier event. That was the earlier event in which he does set the stage for this. Oh yeah. He makes that affirmation. He makes that proclamation. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Here he's actually exercising it. He's actually doing it. And they're amazed and a little bit terrified at this. Go to Matthew, chapter 9. Chapter 9? Chapter 9. <laughs> chapter 9. If you look at the chart... Yeah, there's a lot of blue there. Yeah. A lot of color. A lot of color. A lot of blue. All the way down to right here. Wow. Right here. In Mark, it's right here. Come quite a ways. <laughs> and we're going to be going back to pick up the all of that in a bit once we get a little further on, but not much further. Okay, Mark chapter, Matthew. Matthew chapter 9 we're actually going to pick it up at verse 1 although it starts in verse 2 and after setting getting into a boat he crossed the sea and came to his own town not Nazareth Capernaum interesting that actually echoes what Mark says where Mark says he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Home. Hmm. Why was that his home? Hmm. Well, he's kind of made his home with Peter. Hmm. That's the house he's in. His mother-in-law again, right? His mom-in-law, yeah. Peter's mom. -in -law. Peter's mother-in-law, yeah. 
So, so he's kind of been—he kind of makes Kapernaum his home base, his headquarters. Well, no wonder they killed him if he went back to Nazareth. Well, yeah, according to Luke. That's according to Luke, not according to Matthew. Matthew and Bob us with that detail. Not yet. Matthew chapter nine, verse two, and just then. Some people were carrying a paralyzed man lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Then some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, stand up, take your bed, and go to your home. And he stood up and went to his home. When the crowd saw it, they were filled with awe, and they glorified God who had given such authority to human beings. To man, literally. Now what's different here? How is Matthew using this differently? Refresh my memory of who Matthew was. Levi, the tax collector. Yeah, it's interesting, verse 8, that which had given such power to men. Mm-hmm. Interesting interpretation. Well, first of all, and they didn't have to go to a house was a pretty big difference, you know? We're it's been taken here. out of its house context. This isn't happening at Peter's house. Mm-hmm. It's kind of happening out in the street. Jesus has just gotten into Capernaum. He's gotten up out of the boat. Walking up into the town, and this happens. So he's taking it out of its original context in Mark, which means he feels free to do that. No trust, no, no problem at all doing that. None at all. But you could, it could still, it could fit in the house. They just left that part out. You could, in theory, but there's, it's not there. You'd have to assume all this material here belongs here. Right. Well, they were going to be what anyway. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what Matthew has done, though, is he's taken it out of the context of the rest of the story. Now, what problem does that generate that Matthew leaves hanging as a thread? And it's staring you in the nose, and it's something I want to talk about. It's very important in the story. We've skipped it all, all the two times. When Jesus saw their faith, in Mark, the faith was that they brought him up onto the, because they couldn't get the jerks who were hanging around the door to get out of the way. They get up on the roof, they dig through the roof, pull the thatch aside, the mud, whatever, and put the mat down with the guy on it into the house so that they can get him to Jesus. In Luke, he gets on top, they pull the shingles aside, and they push him in. And down in the middle where Jesus is so they can be with Jesus. There's none of that here. The faith is hanging like a thread. And while many translations will read as, and then some people brought to him a paralyzed man or something like that, 
That ain't what the Greek says. The Greek is very literal, and the NRSV renders it rather well. Then just then, kind of shebang out of nowhere, and just then some people were carrying, not, not any particular group, just some people were carrying a paralyzed man lying on a bed. It's like they're going by Jesus, not bringing to him as some will render it based upon the rendering in Mark and, and Luke. Well, the, so King James says, does it really say that? Nope. King James says it doesn't they brought him to him. Well, they they brought him. to him. That is a textual yeah. accumulation from Mark and from Luke. It's not how it reads. Literally it reads, and just then some people were carrying a paralyzed man lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, the faith would have to be them carrying the man on a bed. But it doesn't say in the, in the Greek that they were carrying him the, the man to him. All translations, not all, many translations, the NRSV doesn't do it, several others don't do it too, will try to render this as being to Jesus, but it's not. <laughs> it's by Jesus, if anything. He just sees the man being carried on the bed. Do we know why Matthew did that? Nope. Oh boy. Except that he has taken the story uh -huh. and it was important for Jesus to see their faith. But yeah, what? but where is it? It's not expressed. Now, let's look at this. Look at it with an, with Matthew, with Mark and Luke in mind. Jesus saw their faith. Here's a lesson in sermon writing. Jesus saw their faith. So what does that tell us about the faith that they had? It was visible. It was visible. They expressed it. They expressed it. They were in action. And he saw it. Faith isn't passive. Faith is active. So I mean, you know, it's very easy here to preach a good sermon. Will Jesus see your faith? Let others see your faith when you carry others to Jesus. You could even take the whole story of the healing and make it a metaphor and say, when others, or you, are paralyzed by sin, when, others, when, when you, Rich, are paralyzed by sin, others will carry you to Jesus. And by their faith, then, you will then see and hear and experience the forgiving presence of Christ. That preaches, and it preaches well. It's taking the story and using it as a metaphor. But it does work. In, in, in the, the, their faith is active. Unfortunately, Matthew robs it of that. By kind of leaving it hanging out there. Just carrying, even if you were to read it as he carried the paralytic to, they carried the paralytic to Jesus. What's the big deal about that? Well, that is faith because well, they, what, what's the big deal about the woman with the blood then? She had the same she faith. She slinked herself Jesus. through and touched the garment him, thinking, and then with that issue of blood, she's unclean and. To actually do get through the crowd is a violation of several laws. And touching Jesus is a big no-no too. And so she reaches out and touches. Every step in there is a major act of faith on her part. And a big risk on her part. 
This, these guys are just picking the other guy up and taking him to Jesus, which is faith that Jesus will heal him, if you understand it that way. Faith that Jesus would heal him, but... Here's another story for your sermon. It just takes a little bit of faith. Yeah, you could use it that way if you wished. But here, in, in Mark and Luke, they go up on the roof and dig a hole and put him down through or move the shingles aside and put him down through to get him to Jesus. That's a rather major undertaking because these jerks won't get out of the way. <laughs> I would have said, hey, you, move over. Paralyzed man kept him through. through. (laughs) That's what I would have done. Rather than go up on the roof and dig a hole. But that, you know. It's much more dramatic that way now. Yeah, Yeah, it is. It is is an expression of their faith. Well, it it is much more. I mean, they weren't weren't shut out. They, They went above and beyond to... More more for preaching a sermon. Even though there may be a great deal in your way, don't let that stand in. Don't let the obstacle stand in your path of exercising your faith. Man, we can pull like eight or nine sermons out of this. Especially when you're desperate, it said one of them. Uh, Really? Yeah, it did. It's proved how desperate they were. Proved how desperate they were? Yeah, it looks like to me, or the man was in desperate. It looks like to me, Matthew might have, probably not, but he could have have been Mm -hmm. trying to say that uh, Jesus can see your faith when men don't. That's 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 a tenth sermon right here. (laughs) I mean, I look at this and say, what's what's the great shanks about them carrying this guy? Well, of course, this has been plucked out of Mark's rendition. Out of its context, it loses the impact of going through this roof like they did. But that's where the story comes from. Hmm. And then with all his faith, they come assuming he's going to be healed and he gets called on his sins. He gets forgiven, not called on his sins, not beaten on for his sins. He was sins. told to sin. He's been forgiven. Take heart, son. How much? I, 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 the one thing I don't like about how Luke adjusted this was he said, he says here, friend. Luke or Matthew? Luke. Yeah, Matthew Luke. says friend too. No. no Matthew says he son. He says my son. Luke says friend. One thing I don't really like about how Luke changes it is he says friend. Did he use a different Greek word? Yes. Mark uses the word son. So does Matthew. Matthew retains that. Matthew retains it. Take heart, son. Don't be beaten down by this. Your sins are forgiven. And you notice, he, he didn't do nothing to get it. He's just there. He's been brought to Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. And all three, he's been brought to Jesus. No indication he even has to go see Jesus, although we can assume he did. But his friends, because they had such great faith, decided to get him to Jesus. Jesus doesn't beat on him for being a sinner. Jesus doesn't say, you must change to be healed. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. No beat on yourself, no change, none none of that other stuff. Just you're forgiven. He didn't even have to recognize that his sins were the problem. No, you don't have to go through and list all things that you did and confess Mm -hmm. them. None of that. No confessional booth. And it wasn't plural. Each one was plural too. Sins. Just one partner. Plural. 
No one's bigger Which than the probably other means it's not a single thing. It means certainly it's not a single thing. Yeah. And probably means it's not even a group of things. It's the very nature of being a sinner. Which lessens the connection between the illness and the sin. But doesn't change the fact that the healing is the demonstration of the forgiveness. Why didn't he forgive all the others of their sins? Good question. They weren't showing faith at that time. They weren't. They weren't. Their <laughs> need was different. This man's this need may have, may have been that he had been beaten the crap out of by, by these Pharisees because he was paralyzed and therefore somebody, him or his wife or his kids or his parents must have sinned and therefore he is paralyzed. Deuteronomic theology. And instead of instead of dealing with the illness, he deals with the sin, with the pain, the true pain this guy has, the true problem this guy has. So I say it's a forgiveness story. By saying your sins are forgiven. And I would I would draw it all the way to the conclusion and say, the very nature of you being a sinner. We are sinners not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's the very nature of us to do it. And that's what Jesus is handling here. Your hamartia, your shortfallenness. The Greek word for sin is hamartia. And it means to miss the mark or fall short. When you're doing, it, it comes from archery language in Greek. Uh, the, the, you know, shooting arrows. And you've got a target over there. And you pull back to fire, and your arrow doesn't make it to the target. Not that it hits the broad side of the barn. <laughs> it's that it falls into the ground before it even gets to the target. Not sinning is hitting the target. Sinning is falling short of the target. And you can fall short two feet from you or two inches from the target. If you've missed the mark, if you haven't hit the target, you've fallen short. Amartia, that's the nature of sin. Not living according to God's will or calling. Falling short of the glory of God. Failing to be whom God calls you to be. Plain and simple. Not the things that we do. Those are the symptoms. Just like paralysis was the symptom of his illness, whatever that was. The sins that we commit are the symptoms of our being sinners. And that's what Jesus is dealing with here. And that's what Jesus deals with with all of us. The very sin nature. I remember you saying years and years ago that the angels kind of looked at God and went, you got to be kidding. You're going to give grace to these people? <laughs> these stinking, sniveling little monsters. Yes, because we fall, they fall so short of what... You created like us. us. <laughs> Look at us. We're angels. We're really good. Yeah. Woohoo. And you're going to forgive them? They smell God, and you're going to die for them? Who do you think you are? And that's what caused Satan to fall. I mean, that, literally, if you, if you want to get into that kind of, of an understanding of the nature of the fall of Satan, that was the source of it. That's one of the things that C.S. Lewis says that he's absolutely right about. In that idea, he's he's vermin. 
That was one of the terms of scrutation. <laughs> These sniveling little vermin. Yeah. <laughs> that's Some kind. Of, I mean, you know, really. And 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 it's not. That's that's exactly right. And that's kind of what we have right here. Your sins are forgiven. The forgiveness, and it's so tender. Matthew does a beautiful job of rendering it tenderly, better than Mark does, where he says, "Take heart, gird up your heart, my son." He says, "Be of good courage." Be of good courage. It's an idiom in Greek. Literally, gird up your heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Don't have to do anything for it. They're forgiven. Wow. I mean, the culture of the day, to get forgiveness, you had to go through all sorts of things. All sorts of rituals you had to go through. Go to the temple, present the offering, pay the priest. I had to kill the animal. I had to take the blood, sprinkle it on the altar. I mean, you're talking a major set of rituals. And then, the instant you leave the temple, you step your toe, say a bad word, guess what? <laughs> You're in trouble! <laughs> I mean, it's... It, it, Jesus doesn't mess with that. That's... Which is easier to do? Forgive sins or heal? You're talking about all of this. And guess what? Guess how Jesus ends up actually establishing his authority... I'm going to use a big word here, and I've used it in my book. It's the word ontological. It means fundamentally. It means at its root basis in its very meaning and substance. Ontologically, Jesus' authority to forgive sins is rooted in what he was going to do on the cross when he dies for the sins of the whole world. Now, was that easy? No, that was super hard. That goes to that idea of you know there's no timeline for him, so at the, he has the authority now, even Precisely. though you're pointing to the future event. This can actually what he says to the scribes and Pharisees here can be understood as a foretelling of what he's going to going to have to do to make it possible for him to do this. Die on the cross. Very powerful thought and, and, and scary in, in a sense. Here he is. He knows this here. Wow. But he, even though everybody he encountered and, and healed physically also had sins that needed to be sure. forgiven. But you're, you are asserting that you, based upon the story, something, this person was much more in need of it, conscious of it. Maybe. You think, and you think that's what drove this to be different and that Jesus addressed it because he sensed that this person was more... There was something about this paralytic that needed more than just a healing. He needed, he needed forgiveness. But all the others did too. I mean, they were sure. Too. All the others need forgiveness as well. But this particular one, you could, you could look at it this way. Jesus in his omniscience, in his all-knowing, looks at this one and realizes this is the one that all time needs to hear. Your sins are forgiven. Here I'm preaching. Because sin does paralyze and make it impossible for us to come to God apart from what Jesus does. 
But because Jesus says your sins are forgiven, before we do anything, we can then be unparalyzed and walk. I'm glad I'm recording this. That's going to get to be a sermon. Okay. Um, it, 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 it's a powerful image. And there's something about this event and this particular guy in his situation that makes him an absolute perfect example. Maybe not for them there so much, although obviously was, according to both Mark and Luke, but more so for us. And then look how, look how Matthew finishes it. When the crowd saw it, they were filled with awe, and they glorified God who had given such authority to human beings, to men. Now notice, they, Matthew doesn't quote what they say. He just says that he's glorified and, and paraphrases it. Given such authority to men, to humans. Matthew, he wasn't just any human, though. He wasn't just any but man. But Matthew is also writing after the fact, knowing that Jesus has commanded us and said, the sins of any that you retain, they are retained. The sins of any that you forgive, they are forgiven. He's told us and given us authority to forgive. And this, this observation is cast back on these people, kind of out of context, but Matthew's doing that anyway. He's making a point for later readers more than anything else here. That God gave them the power to do that also. Just as Jesus forgave. In fact, because Jesus forgave, now you must also forgive. And he'll say that more blatantly elsewhere. But that's a good example of it right there. No one has the right to retain sin. We are to forgive. 70 times 7. Always. Eternally. We are to forgive. Well, that's powerful in that Lord's Prayer. If you don't forgive, I mean, the the basic conception in that prayer is, if you are not a forgiver, you can forget about being forgiven. That's the essence, meaning of that part of the prayer. Therefore, we must be have the attitude attitude of forgiveness towards others. Yeah, forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin, sin against, against us. us. It really makes you want to forgive everyone who comes across your path because you're saying, forgive me as I do unto others. Oh, yeah. But you know, it would be nice if he said, forgive yourself while you're at it. That's one of the hard parts. Uh -huh. Sometimes we are much more hard on ourselves than we are on others. Self-recrimination. This also has a translation of uh, when it talks about thy sins are forgiven, that part, they use the word pardoned. And when you say it's hard to forgive yourself, you can't pardon yourself. That requires somebody else to pardon you. Need to, you. you need to hear. Yes. And it yes. requires another person. God That's where us. Protestantism is It's at its weakest in that we gave up the good aspect of the confessional right. Being able to speak with the, the confessional in, began in Catholicism and in Eastern Orthodoxy originally as a mode of advice. You would pray to God for forgiveness with the priest there to listen to your sins, to help you identify, first of all, 
what's the most troubling, and secondly, how to develop spiritual disciplines to overcome them, not to pay for them, and then to pronounce, in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. So it's a counselor. Exactly right. Yeah. And in the modern rites for confession in the Roman Catholic Church, it's exactly how it functions. Mm -hmm. It's how it functions in the Episcopal Church. It's a fabulous spiritual discipline. They've recovered it. It got glommed over with this stuff of you're paying for sins with your penance and 75,000 Hail Marys or whatever it is you have to do. In the reformation of the confessional rite in the Catholic Church, they've done a real good job of moving back towards how it was originally established in that counselor-type situation. And, and that power of hearing it said, in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. It's, it's, you've got to hear that. And, and, I, we, and we don't. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember standing in line going, okay, i got to say one of these sins out loud. Which one am I going to do that's not going to make me look that bad? <laughs> and so when I got up there, I said the one that I didn't even know I had. Uh -huh. and it was, that was the Holy Spirit bringing it up yeah. into you. Mm. Yeah, and it, mm. the moment I said it, it went into the congregation and into the church and disappeared. And it was the most... There you go. Experience of my entire life. That's powerful. That, that's very powerful. And that's the kind of experience that this man had. Your sin, my take heart. Be of great courage. Gird up your heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. And the fact, the idea that these jerks would say this is blasphemy. Wow. And that's what the church does. How dare you accept people who don't meet our standards of perfection and behavior? Who are you to receive them? <laughs> Did you not read about Jesus? <laughs> yeah, I think that there's something about, to go back to your original question, there's something about this particular man and his circumstance that when Jesus looked at him, knew that he needed to hear he he needed healing but he needed to hear forgiveness the others needed forgiveness but for whatever reason he chose healing with them here this man needed forgiveness and I think based on the nature of this that it actually is more for us maybe even more so than for him although he needed to hear it clearly and the Pharisees needed to have it shoved in their faces <laughs> And that's going to be true always. That's going to be true always. Questions? Observations? That's all three Rights. of them are saying the same thing. That's a little, it's pretty powerful and a little unusual. As different as Matthew is from Mark and Luke, leaving out the context, it's still the same story and yeah. it still says the same thing. Oh. It is interesting to see how each of them do it a little differently, like Matthew adding the men, so the power was given for men, for all of us. Which is, which is a Matthian interpretation, which is not found in the other two, and is a powerful statement, and a very true statement. But unique to them, though, not to us. I mean, it was unique. Very <laughs> unique to them. Think about to whom Matthew's writing this gospel. He's writing it to Jewish Christians who live in this culture that say, and to Jewish Christians who are living in a culture post-destruction of the second temple, no more sacrifices. No more sacrifices for sins can be now done 
Judaism's having to completely restructure and reform its whole meaning of forgiveness, its whole understanding of experiencing forgiveness and relationship with God. They can no longer do sacrifices in the temple because it's gone. And here Matthew's writing this to Jewish Christians who are dealing with Jews. And he's saying this about forgiveness. So you put him in his cult. It's almost no surprise that he doesn't want to bother with the stuff about the house. He wants to deal with what to him is the most important part. He already added a whole bunch of other stuff. He needs oh. to cut that. Well, he, needs to, he needs to cut it down. I mean, like, he'd be off the chart. His publisher's sitting there going, Matthew, you're that really you're making a multi-volume work here. Like, uh, Enough already. Enough already. Yeah. Um, Mark could add all those little details, and he's not even—he's just a little more than half of the others. I'm stunned that what Jesus says is the same. The response he gets is essentially the same. The the healing, the forgiveness is the same. And the one little thread that runs through that just strikes me is still about the guys who are carrying the man, the paralytic man. When Jesus sees their faith, he sees their faith, and we went back to uh, we went back to Mark. Yeah. Uh, when Jesus saw their faith, it, it's connected. When Jesus saw their faith, he says to the paralytic. Son, your sins are forgiven. There's a connection there, right there, and maybe part of the reason that Jesus decided at that point to forgive instead of just to heal. It's connected to the faith of those who brought him. And by extension, his faith, the, the, the paralytic's faith. Any other questions or thoughts? Because there's another story we can cover. We have time for it. It's not that long. It continues immediately after verse 12 in Mark chapter 2. This is the calling of Matthew. So go to Mark chapter 2 verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Oh. Now the calling of Levi has connected to it a very important story. So we're going to read that too before we go on to Luke and Matthew. So let's keep going. As he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw what he was eating, saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, "Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners?" When Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. I, 
First of all, right off the top, that's a slap in the face to the Pharisees and their, their scribes. Wham! I'm not here for the well or those who think they're well. I'm here not to call the righteous, but sinners. The righteous are the ones who deserve a special attention from God, but they don't need it. <laughs> hmm. Okay, notice they call him Levi, son of Alphaeus. Levi, not the gene. Levi, son of Alphaeus. Let's take a look at this in Luke's parallel. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Notice it follows directly on from the last story. He's following Mark still, and he follows Mark pretty closely here. Again, he cleans up a little bit. He, he makes the story flow a little bit better. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up, left everything, and followed him. So in other words, in verses 27 and 28, Luke has cleaned up 13, 14 of Mark. He shortened it by quite a bit. And yet it says exactly the same thing. He, he just cleaned up the writing style. That's all he did. Good editor. Verse 29 and following. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house. It's a better transition to the banquet story, isn't it? Then Levi gave a banquet, a great, a great banquet. Say that three times fast. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others. <laughs> And others sitting, not and sinners, and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? As a matter of literary construction, Luke knows he doesn't need to say sinners up here, he just says others, because sinners gets identified down here in verse 30. Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's tighter written, so as a work of literary literature, it's better than Mark. Um, it says the same thing, just a little more tightly. Notice what he does at the end of verse 32, though. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Mark, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Luke has added to repentance. To repentance. So what is he called? In Mark? It's like Luke said, well, what did Jesus call them to, Mark? He called them to repentance. We'll add that in. That's what he's called them for. Hmm. Now let's take a look at how Matthew does it. Go to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Interesting. Follows immediately after what we just finished. Huh. Retaining the sequence from Mark. Chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew. 
Isn't that interesting? In Mark, it's Levi. In Luke, it's Levi. But in Matthew, it's Matthew. Because he knows. <laughs> That's an interesting indicator, an interesting indicator as to the origin of the gospel. Well, the Jews usually have a Jewish name first and then a Greek name later on in the Bible. There would be, would well, change. yeah, Levi is a good, solid Jewish name. Yeah. So is Matthew. Well, Matthew is Jewish. <laughs> Matthias. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. He, he cleaned it up a little bit too. Uh, took out some stuff that Mark had in there that apparently he didn't think was needed. And quite frankly, Luke didn't think was needed either. They cleaned it up very similarly, didn't they? All right. And as he sat at dinner in the house, oh, he doesn't include this nice transition that Luke gave it. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. Sort of like a tax collector's convention. And I would have hives sitting in there. <laughs> when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. What has Matthew done? He inserted an interpretation in verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Took out. No, no, he included those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That is there. He's inserted that phrase in verse 13 part a into the middle of it though for i have come to call not the righteous but sinners hmm. so he's he's adjusted it differently than luke did luke adding on to repentance here i desire mercy not sacrifice hmm. so the call of Levi, son of Alphaeus, a.k.a. Matthew. Now, and then the banquet. Thoughts? This follows, what follows this is a very important story. It's important to have this story here for what's going to come next. But I think it's interesting to see how the three of them you know, a fairly close parallel. They got them in the same order, the same sequence. Mark's uh, the basis for Luke. Mark's the basis for Matthew. Luke and Matthew adjusted each slightly to fit their own basic grammatical preferences as well as some theological interpretations. But it's basically the same event. Well, you didn't tell us about the tax collectors. They're probably despised because they're collecting for the Romans. The tax collectors are considered to be traitors. 
because they are collaborating with the Romans. They are taking money from good, hard-working Jewish people and giving it to the occupation forces. These tax collectors are the lowest of the low. Well, Matthew was one of them. And Matthew was one of them. Levi is a tax collector, and that's a problem. I mean, that's you just can't. I mean, tax collectors and sinners. It's it go the the two words go together in their thinking. I mean, they're sinners and then they're tax collectors. Ooh. Wonder what the sinners were doing. <laughs> what, was what were the sinners doing? What were the sinners oh, yeah. doing? Who were the other sinners? The were others. They, uh, friends. We know what the tax collectors were doing, so what was the sinners doing? Yeah. Party. <laughs> and Jesus was eating with them. Yeah, and the scribes yeah. were too. Well, oh, it, they, does it say that? They did say the scribes are. There is an implication that they're there, but there's also the implication, or those, that they're they're outside looking and oh, watching. They're, nosy. they're being nosy. Yeah. <laughs> they're involving themselves in something that isn't any of their business. What else is new? <laughs> would, you, would you go into what he said um, about the? Mercy, showing mercy rather than sacrifice. In Matthew, what is the sacrifice yeah. there? I understand mercy. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Um, in connection with the idea that you pay for your sin. Sacrifice, you go to the temple, make a sacrificial offering, or to put it more personally, you, you beat on yourself, you change yourself to stop being a sinner. And here he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Not the penance. Not the penance, but mercy. Hmm. So he, he doesn't make this, he doesn't, he's called Levi, but he doesn't say anything about having called the tax collectors. No. And that they're there having dinner with him. So he must know Matthew or Levi was a good man. Hmm? He must have known Matthew really was a good man. He must have known he must something. Be doing, he's doing his job. He but, must have known something about Matthew yeah. that wasn't necessarily apparent he has otherwise. He needs. Yeah. Well, he was still in his hometown, wasn't he? Yeah. So he probably Apparently. knew all these people. He may have known him. Yeah. Possibly. Well, except that we keep referring to Capernaum as his, his adopted hometown, not he, the town he grew he hasn't up in. Spent, exactly. Right. He hasn't spent a whole lot of time there either. He's been out and about. That's the one problem when we say that he knew people because it was Capernaum and everybody there, he, he would have known them. He might have met them by now, but that he would have known them? Known about them, maybe. Maybe have met them in the synagogue. I, but he hasn't been there for very long. He's from Nazareth. He's just moved to Capernaum recently. Well, when did he move? Do you know when he was a kid? Just, 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 just in the previous chapter in Mark. Yeah, he's come out of the wilderness in Mark. He's just come out of the wilderness from being uh, tempted by the devil. And the first thing he does in Mark is he goes to Capernaum. And that's where he calls Peter and raises... Uh, uh, Peter's mother from the fever and sort of uh, and it just it's it's brief and very quick. 
Now, in Luke, it's more expansive, and he's already gone home to Nazareth, been thrown out of Nazareth, nearly murdered there, leaves and goes down to Capernaum. So Luke has more material in it. Matthew's just as brief as Mark. But it's all as an adult after he's All as an adult ministry. within the latest month. If that, it, it, reads, it reads so brief, it sounds like this is all happening within just a few weeks. So this is chapter 2. The Jesus moving to Capernaum is in the second half of chapter 1 of Mark. And there's no real time zone in there other than these are disconnected or loosely connected stories. Just one told after another. The sequence, the sequence then follows Mark chapter 2 verse 18. And it follows the story we just read. It could stand on its own, but it follows the story we just read probably for the very reason that the nature of what, it, what happens. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came, to, came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the Fer disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. And we need to continue because the rest of this is important, especially in the other two. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost. And so are the skins. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Almost seems like an interesting little aphorism, two aphorisms here, but you're not entirely sure that they apply to what we just heard, is it? Little, little weird. How does that apply to fasting or not fasting? Well, let's take a look at Luke. Luke chapter 5, verse 33. And the bit about the wedding guest and all, we'll come to that in a little bit. Let's, I want to read them all three before we do. So chapter 5, 33. Following exactly on what we've just finished. It's nice that Luke and Matthew decided to clump all these together with how Mark did it. Then they said to him, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. Jesus said to them, You cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. 
Otherwise, the new will be torn, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new wine, but says the old is good. Hmm. So he's tied a little better. These two, these two aphorisms in 21 and 22 into the preceding, and he's also tied the whole sequence from 33 to 39 in to what what we just read in the preceding 29 to 32. The same people who are asking about the tax collectors and sinners apparently are the ones who are now asking this question, which is different uh, than what we have in Mark. Where in Mark, it's people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? So he's tied the story in where Mark didn't. You see how he did that? It simply says, then they, and it's a close related, therefore it follows immediately on. So while Mark, it's separated, it's just an independent story sitting there, Luke has tied it in. That's why I wanted to cover it today. Matthew keeps it separated. Go to Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Still in the same sequence, still in the same chapters, still in the same grouping. But he kind of maintains what Mark did. 9, chapter 14. Then the disciples of John came to him. <laughs> Not people, not the people who, not the folk who were whining and complaining, the, the Pharisees and the scribes whining and complaining about tax collectors and Pharisees, but now it's the disciples of John. That's really interesting. So Mark says people in general. Luke says it's the folk who are whining about the tax collectors and sinners. Matthew says it's the disciples of John. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a piece, notice what he has done. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak. For the patch pulls away from the cloak and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins, otherwise the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is poured into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. He's tied these two even closer in than Luke did, fixing Mark in that way. In answer to the question. So Mark 21 and 22 kind of float there. Luke ties it in, so does Matthew, but even more closely as part of his answer to the question. So we got this bridegroom bit. 
then we've got this piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak. Interesting, unshrunk as opposed to new. Interesting how he, he said that. And then we've got the, the new wine and old wine skins. How, do you, how does he answer the question? Disregard for a minute the, the interesting difference between who asks the question, although that actually would have an impact possibly in your interpretation. Just for a moment. What's, how does he answer the question? Why aren't they fasting? Like John and the, and the Pharisees' disciples. Because he hasn't been crucified yet. Because Jesus is still with them. Well, sure. That part, but I'm not, I'm not seeing the connection to the old and the new. Yeah. Just, just a moment. Jesus yeah. is still with them them. Mm -hmm. yeah, the Jesus, the bridegroom, has not yet left. And we see very clearly stated uh, the days will come when the bridegroom, verse 35 of Luke 5, <laughs> the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. The same thing is essentially said over in Matthew chapter 9. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Now, so the disciples of Jesus are in a different place than the disciples of John, who in Matthew's gospel, what's happened to him? He's already been killed. He's already gone. That's a good reason for them to be fasting right there. Uh, and the Pharisees, why are they fasting? It's required. It's required by the law. It's part of the rules and the regulations that you go by. Jesus is not being governed by those rules and regulations, clearly. I mean, after all, they're fasting when they're not fasting when they should be fasting. He's eating with tax collectors and, and, and sinners when he shouldn't be doing that. I mean, he's been touching lepers when he shouldn't be doing that. He's been forgiving sins when he shouldn't be doing that. I mean, come on. It's, it, he's breaking every single convention here. And here we have yet another example of that. Now, this next set of illustrations... What is he saying? What is he saying the Pharisees and John's disciples are? They're the old wine, they're the old garment. The old covenant, the old relationship, the old way of living, the old approach to, to the law, the old approach to the religious life. They're the old wine. They are the old garment. You can't put a new patch on it. You instead put on a whole new garment. You take off the old one and put on the new. All right. So many people are wanting to patch. It doesn't work. Um, neither is old, new wine put into old wineskins. Got old wine skin, can't hold the new wine. Otherwise, the skin's burst and the wine is spilled. New wine is put into fresh wine skins. The old religious way is the old wine skin. The old religion is the old wine. Go back over to look. Luke, uh, Luke, yeah, verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new wine. What's the difference there? What's the difference there, though? What is old wine? The 
Pharisee? The, what is in the in reality, wives? not metaphorically, in reality? What is old wine? It's not good wine. Well, it's the better. Oh, wine. it is the best. It's wine. the better, better wine. wine. New wine has less alcohol in it. Well, old wine has fermented. It's the better wine. It's aged. It's the aged one now. So, and no one after drinking old wine desires new. If you've had the good, if you've had the good stuff, you don't want the ripple. Well, All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but says the old is good. Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? Almost like a reversal. It's almost like a reversal. I don't know how to handle that one. <laughs> That's what I was wondering. Well, we're waiting. <laughs> well, look, looks to me it says Luke is realizing he has a problem. But new wine must so be put into fresh wineskins. And, uh, you know, he's made that very clear. Let me back it up just a bit further. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled. And these and the skins will be destroyed. That's what's going to happen to them. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. You've got to have a new way of living, not fasting and religious rules and that kind of stuff, not salvation by works, that kind of thing. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. Well, I could all back and say after drinking old wine, you, you're not going to be feeling any pain anyway. <laughs> but you don't want grape juice when you... When you when you when you've had port, I mean, why did he add that? So it doesn't make sense. Uh, maybe Luke liked wine. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's a good question. That's a very good question. You notice he's mixing his metaphors. He's mixing his metaphors, and that is an addition that's in Luke, but not in Mark, and not in Matthew. So maybe it's maybe he's realizing here. Maybe Luke has realized. Well, you know that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't, old wine is better. Mm-hmm. He is mixing his metaphors. <laughs> Love you, Luke. You're a good great grammatician and you're a great doctor. But wow. <laughs> 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 <That's metaphorically> speaking, <laughs> you don't miss that chapter. Right? <laughs> Uh, he was just getting a little mystical. Thing. Maybe he had a little bit of old, too much old wine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we're out of time. But, uh, it, you know, interesting set of stories, all interrelated. What all, and, and I kind of pointed out how they're interrelated. What is he, how are they interrelated? He's, yeah, well, it's forgiveness and uh, he, yes, yeah, and the forgiveness of, with the tax collectors also. He is forgiving like, sin. He is eating sin. with the tax collectors and sinners because they need a doctor. He's not fasting, and he's not fasting. He's violating convention. It, to me, it was they're telling how Jesus is different from the old way. Exactly. Right. He exactly to, to, to pull from to pull from the two aphorisms. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Jesus is the new wine in the new wine skin. But then he makes a mistake. It sounds like well, that's a little. That's, Luke just, that's, just, well, that's, says, that's what you were saying. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Luke has added this little verse 39, and you're going, huh? It doesn't make any sense. It didn't make sense when I read it originally, and I was saying to myself, Luke, but no, that's, 
That is weird. I didn't think they were writing scripture. Well, no, that is true. <laughs> Keep that in mind too. But, but yeah, uh, Jesus views himself and is and is simply saying here, and and, and these two stories, the the patch, and the wineskin, those are very Jewish structured stories. By the way, probably comes straight out of the behind Mark. Probably comes straight out of the Aramaic. Well, if we take it like we were going with it and include that in, he's saying people are not going to want to follow Jesus after they've had the old way. Because the old way is better. The old way sometimes tastes a little better. You know, to, to, pull, from Luke, better. to pull from Luke, sometimes the old way is more comfortable, tastes yeah. a little okay, better. You're more familiar with it. Who wants to go with the new way when you've got the old way and you've enjoyed it? It's comfortable. It's safe. So you can kind of see where Luke pulled that idea back and mixed his metaphors to do it, but he did it. You could get a lot of sermon out of this, can't you? I'm making notes. (laughs) 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 For the next time I preach through. Because it's fascinating stuff. You know, Jesus said he didn't come to destroy the old. He didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. And that idea is 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 contained is actually exemplified by these very passages. To 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 fulfill it means he brings it to fruition. He brings it to completion. He culminates it. He is he is the pinnacle of it. Hence, he is not bound by it. He is the Lord of it. It's not the Lord of him. Just as he says elsewhere, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is of the Lord of me. The human beings aren't to be governed by the Sabbath. We govern the Sabbath. Well, all the old guys were talking about his coming and what he was going to do. So he coming to John the Baptist was preparing the way for him. If the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Zealots and the Essenes and all other the, the other denominations of Judaism in that day had read the Hebrew Bible a different way, they would have seen Jesus there too. They instead, instead of understanding the Messiah as being the suffering servant, they viewed all of the Hebrew people as being the suffering servant. All the Jews were the suffering servant, not one person, not a Messiah, all Jews. And because they still do this, and because they do this, they have trouble seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Whereas the church saw it immediately. Once you accept Christ as the Messiah, as the chosen one of God, as the Son of God, when you look at the suffering servant stories from Isaiah, you can't miss him. Is there. But if you're assuming that the suffering servant are the people of Israel, and they were doing it as recently as the Holocaust during the Second World War, that they're doing it today in, in Israel. When you when you when you consider that the if you think that the whole people are the suffering servant, you're not gonna see Jesus as that. You're not. And that's kind of what we had here. They they they're not seeing Jesus as the culmination of the law. They're not seeing Jesus as the suffering servant. They're not seeing Jesus as the light unto the world. Not at all. That's their job. 
You know, when you think about it, it's very sad for the Jews. They haven't found the Messiah yet. And when they do, we're going to be mighty surprised if they see who they're going to pick to be the Messiah. Well, the, the nominal Christian understanding, and this has been true since Paul, is that, is that they will recognize Christ Jesus at his return as being the Messiah. Because when he returns, he will do what they were expecting the Messiah to do to begin with, which is be victorious over the occupation forces of evil. In Jesus' day, it was the occupation forces of the Roman Empire. It would be true for any setting. Whoever's occupying and oppressing the people of God, the Messiah's job is to overthrow them, destroy them. And that is what they believe the Messiah does. And then establishes right worship and establishes the kingdom of David. There's, there, there's the, the political Messiah establishing the kingdom of David. There's the... Um, there's the religious uh, king, uh, priestly messiah establishing right worship, and there's the military messiah overcoming and overthrowing the occupation forces of evil. And all three of those things the messiah is supposed to do, well, in, in, in historical immediacy in the life of Jesus, Jesus didn't do them. However, you could, I've seen it pointed out to, to Jews who are now Christians, and they now say it and point it out to Jews, but they ignore it, is you know, Jewish Christians will do this today. They'll say, but Jesus did all of those things, even, even fairly quickly after his death and resurrection. And yeah, But Messiahs don't die is the usual immediate answer. I've had Jews tell me that. Messiahs don't die. It's not in the job description. Yes, what suffering servants do. Suffering servants aren't messiahs. Yes, they are. And then you argue back and forth. Well, if you don't have your terms and you don't agree on what a messiah is supposed to do and be, you've got a problem. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal. Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.